Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program updates from the American 2017 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well. And because of that um, collaboration and your interest in the program, we have over 560 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from different parts of the country, from both urban and rural and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Ireland, Singapore, Taiwan, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. As well, and we all of you to the call today. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, a grant from Genentech, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program and their working together to make this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor of medicine, Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow is going to, first of all, address the purpose of the American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting, the overview of blood cancers, and then leukemia-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and the important role of clinical trials. It really is my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Oh, thank you, Carolyn, and thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, again, my name is Michael Morrow from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and I'll start us off by a few, with a few topics. First, the, what, what is the purpose of ASH, the American Society for Hematology? So ASH is an organization I believe was um, initiated in, in the 1950s, 1958, um, as a forum for hematologists and those take, um, doing research in the field of hematology to gather um, to formulate research, um, uh, move advances forward for blood cancer patients, um, uh, there was journals associated with the with the society and, and a very large annual meeting. So that's generally what we're referring to. It occurs in December. Generally, 25,000 people or so gather in a city in the United States. And this year was in Atlanta. We suffered the snowstorms of Atlanta in December, unfortunately, and, and um, uh, taught each other about blood cancer research, uh, shared ideas, um, generated ideas, and it was a wonderful meeting. So we'll give you an overview of the different disease areas um, and the research that was covered there during the call. The second topic would be just to discuss an overview of blood cancer. So in simple terms, blood cancers are con conditions that affect the production and function of blood cells. Uh, they generally start in the, in the bone marrow or the blood-forming organs. Um, many people ask about stem cells, which are the cells that mature in the blood to make the three types of cells we have in our blood, red blood cells, white blood cells, or platelets. In, in most of the blood cancers, normal blood development is, is changed or interrupted, and you have an uncontrolled growth of an abnormal blood cell. So the abnormal blood cells are the cancer cells, and they prevent the blood from doing its normal functions, mainly fighting infection, preventing bleeding, and maintaining you know, good oxygen carrying capacity. 
There are three main types of blood cancers, which we have speakers on each topic today, leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. So leukemia is a cancer found in the blood and the marrow uh, caused by generally a rapid production of abnormal white blood cells. <clears throat> a high number of, of abnormal white blood cells that are produced are not able to fight infection, and they impair the ability of the bone marrow to produce other blood cells, red blood cells and platelets. So it's generally an overproduction of white blood cells of some type. Lymphoma is a different type of blood cancer that affects the lymphatic system, which is or the lymphocytes, which are cells that remove extra fluid from the body and mainly produce immune cells. Lymphocytes, as you may know, are cells that um, fight infection. Abnormal lymphocytes are um, the cells that have become lymphoma, which can multiply and collect in the lymph nodes, the bone marrow, and other tissues, and these cancer cells can impair the immune system. Myeloma is a very specific type of blood cancer that's a cancer of the plasma cells, so the plasma cells are white blood cells that produce disease and infection-fighting antibodies. Uh, myeloma cells prevent the normal production of antibodies generally, and which can weaken the immune system, make you susceptible to infection, and cause other problems. So in overview, we have a, a multiple different types of blood cancers, but there's gen obviously general themes there. Um, my topic um, was to discuss um, advances in leukemia, leukemia-specific advances, and that's a big topic. So I'm going to try to cover the basis on a few different types of leukemia. I'll start with acute myeloid leukemia. Um, the leukemias would be classified by acute and chronic, and whether they involve lymphoid cells or myeloid cells. So AML is, a, is one of the acute leukemias, acute myeloid leukemia, and we've seen tremendous advances here. At the ASH meeting um, and in recent months, we've First off, I'd say we, we've um, had several different FDA approvals of medications, first being a drug called Mitostorin, which is an inhibitor of a certain kinase or a defect that's found in, in some patients with AML, and it's very useful combined with chemotherapy. Um, that um, has led um, the way, and there's great development in the area of other what are called FLT3 inhibitors. And the second um, approval would be for a drug called IDHIFA, or Anacidinib, which is an inhibitor of an, another switch or an enzyme that's abnormal leukemia cells called IDH, in this case IDH2. That being said, even though we have these great advances, we saw updates on other FLT3 inhibitors. There are a family, once one drug is approved, um, we try to build on that. And at ASH, we saw reports on the use of um, Cronolinib, which is another FLT3 inhibitor, Kazartinib, and yet another drug called Giltaritinib. So these are 2.0, 3.0 versions of, of FLT3 inhibitors, which we think may be more specific, more potent, and, and can be used um, with chemotherapy or maybe even as single drugs. The movement continues with uh, after the approval of the IDH inhibitors, and we're seeing now them being moved up. They were first tested in people by themselves who hadn't the opportunity to get standard treatment or who had uh, failed standard treatment, and they worked quite well to, um, by themselves, but they're now being used in combination with chemotherapy and have been shown to be safe with chemotherapy, um, two different kinds, something called hypomethylated agents, and also standard chemotherapy we would use in acute myeloid leukemia. Another big advance in AML was the use of a drug actually borrowed from uh, lymphoid cancer treatment called venetoclax, which is an inhibitor of a cancer protein called BCL2. And there was a lot of research at ASH looking, uh, updating us on the use of this drug venetoclax with lower doses of, of conventional chemotherapy or with what are called hypomethylene agents with very good response rates. The majority of patients responding to treatment, even when folks might have not been eligible for standard treatment, might have been too weak or it could have been too dangerous or they had failed previous treatment. 
So that's extremely encouraging. And lastly, and which I think my colleagues will talk more about, there's beginning to be research in CART T cells, which is an engineered immune cell, a T cell that can, um, is engineered to engage and fight with specific leukemia cells, and there's now data in AML against a, something called CD123. Um, I'm going to quickly mention that um, there was uh, the drug Midastorn, um, uh, or RIDAP, was also approved for mast cell disease, which is a rare blood cancer. And at ASH, in one of the most important parts of the meeting, we saw an update on another drug potentially useful for patients with mast cell disease. It's called Blue 285. It's like a James Bond drug. It's only got a code name. Um, but that uh, same theme where we're having... Um, evolution of our drugs, and we have sort of have a 2.0 version of, of a targeted drug for patients with mast cells targeting a kit uh, mutation in those patients where across the board patients had improvements in their disease findings, their tryptase level, which is an enzyme in the blood, the bone marrow, and the spleen improved with a response rate with majority of patients having good, good um, response to this drug. So stay tuned for that. Um, the next disease here I'm going to cover is CML which um, is one of the chronic leukemias in an area that I do a lot of research in. And this has, has shown tremendous advance over the last decade and a half. And at ASH, I think we saw some of the icing on the cake of some of the last bits of the stories there. In short, um, in CML, we saw um, more mature data uh, moving our drugs continually earlier lines of treatment. And, and there was more mature data using a drug called Bosilif or Brasutinib compared to Gleevec or Mantinib in the, as a first treatment. And right after the ASH meeting, uh, we learned that the FDA gave the authorization for basutinib to be used for a patient even at diagnosis of, of CML. So we now have four drugs approved that someone could use with a diagnosis of CML, which is terrific to have so many options. And probably the most ex um, exciting data in CML is coming out of the question that patients may have a functional cure after a duration of treatment, um, not right away, but after several years of treatment and several years of deep remission. We saw data that patients who take desantinib or Spricel, um, whether it's their first, second drug, um, have very good rates of uh, ability to, to stop their drug up somewhere in the 40 to 60% range, which isn't perfect, and we need to work on that, but it's certainly um, tremendously encouraging. And that came from a trial called the DAS-free trial presented at ASH. And a very large study in Europe called the Euro-Ski trial um, gave us more clarity on the question about how long does someone have to be on treatment to potentially think about stopping. And with careful analysis, it seems to be that three years or so of deep remission after a period of five to five and a half years generally of, of treatment, which sounds like a long time, but it's actually a, a journey which is, is quite manageable, um, that seems to be the optimal time to think about stopping treatment. In the last few moments, I'm going to just cover a little bit of CLL, which I think my colleague um, who's going to speak to us in lymphoma may also cover. But uh, suffice it to say that there's been tremendous um, advances there, um, and um, both in the frontline setting for someone with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, we've uh, seen um, targeted therapies, particularly the drug abrutinib, which targets something called the Bruton's tyrosine kinase, something active in CLL cells and, and, a, and a novel target that's um, been, been uh, where drugs have been developed quite effective. We've seen that drug combined with standard treatments like FCR, which is a chemotherapy regimen that's quite often used with patients, all the patients responding and a very high rate of patients getting their bone marrow free of CLL. We've seen combinations with abrutinib with other regimens, um, newer antibody drugs called abinutuzumab, um, with very similar results where the rate of bone marrow negativity is, after treatment is very high, which is an extremely good outcome, not only responding to treatment, but also clearing what we call uh, measurable or residual disease. We even have a non-chemotherapy regimen that's been put forth in CLL where we're using the drug I mentioned earlier, venetoclax, 
um, with ibrutinib. And I think we see that the safe, safety of, of this combination, particularly when venetoclax um, is given later, because that drug can cause those CLL cells to clear so fast that they cause complications, and the ibrutinib is helpful to be used earlier on. Um, in patients who have already been treated for CLL, there's also been um, advances. Comparisons um, between programs that are used now um, incorporating the drug venetoclax um, with a drug called rituximab showing um, improvement over uh, the, the uh, drug benamustine and rituximab in a trial called the Murano study, which was a very important study. Um, and even better versions of the drugs we have available. So another 2.0 drug called acalabrutinib. Um, Abrutinib is a very good drug, but in some patients can cause some cardiovascular and some bleeding problems, and these newer versions of the drug may be safer. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to take up too much time and just end by saying that there's been tremendous advances in targeted therapy in, in the leukemias. Um, I think um, I've hopefully shared some of the high points, and I'm going to turn it over back to my colleagues. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was outstanding and just a wonderful way to start the program. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Associate Professor of Medicine, Chief of the Lymphoma Program, Weill Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Martin is going to be addressing an overview of lymphoma, lymphoma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really my pleasure now to turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to uh, give this presentation. Um, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, lymphoma is a kind of uh, white blood cell cancer that happens in the lymphatic system. Historically speaking, lymphomas were considered to be tumor or uh, white blood cell cancers that formed uh, solid tumors throughout the body, uh, often in lymph nodes, but occasionally in other places uh, as well. I think over time, we've started to become more focused biologically and uh, less maybe anatomically. And so the uh, definition of lymphoma has evolved over time. And, and in fact, in the most recent classification system of lymphomas, there were over 100 different entities described. And so this is obviously really confusing for people uh, who have lymphoma or for their caregivers. It's also confusing, frankly, for doctors uh, who manage cancer, even those of us that see lymphoma uh, every day, all day, uh, can be challenging to keep track of that many different uh, things. So the purposes of this um, teleconference, rather than discuss every single hundred entities of lymphoma, I thought I would focus uh, just on a few updates from ASH that I thought were um, particularly groundbreaking because they're all related to approval of new drugs by the FDA. And then, of course, during the question and answer period, I'd be happy to answer any more questions about some of the specific, specific subtypes of lymphoma. So the first uh, study that I wanted to mention uh, was a study that was presented in the ASH plenary session. So the ASH plenary session is uh, basically six presentations that the um, ASH reviewers de determined to be the most important research uh, done throughout the year. And so this was one of the most important studies uh, or considered to be one of the most important studies in the entire ASH meeting. And it was a study that uh, uh, was also uh, later published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January. And it uh, is called the uh, Brentuximab Vidotin plus Doxorubicin Vinblastine Decarbazine, a frontline therapy for uh, Hodgkin lymphoma. So uh, Hodgkin lymphoma is uh, a lymphoma that tends to form uh, solid tumors throughout the body, often in the uh, chest. And fortunately, Hodgkin lymphoma is one of the lymphomas that uh, is 
has an extremely high cure rate with standard therapies. The standard therapies are uh, based on chemotherapy. It's a chemotherapy regimen that we've been using essentially for the past 30 years. Unfortunately, it has some uh, drawbacks. Despite its high cure rate, it can uh, cause some issues. One of the drugs in particular, bleomycin, can be associated with some lung inflammation. Uh, Brentuximab vidotin, which is the experimental drug in this setting, is already approved for treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma that's been that hasn't been eradicated by two prior lines of standard chemotherapy. And because it's so effective, there's been interest in trying to use it earlier on in the course of therapy, uh, potentially uh, dropping some of the drugs that might be harmful. And so that's exactly what the study did, that replaced the bleomycin with brentuximab bedotin. And over uh, 1,300 patients uh, around, the, around the world were uh, included in this trial. And indeed, the, uh, Dr. Connors, who presented the paper, um, presented data showing that, uh, indeed, we improved uh, time to progression by over 5% with two years of follow-up. So there was a significant improvement. The study met its prior endpoint, or uh, prior uh, endpoint. And uh, the company that makes Brentuximabidotin has submitted a new drug application to the FDA, and we expect it to be uh, approved shortly. Another uh, study that I thought would uh, I would mention quickly is one that uh, Dr. Morrow already mentioned, and that's with acalabrutinib, which was recently approved by the FDA for treatment of previously treated mantle cell lymphoma. Mantle cell lymphoma is a form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that uh, is relatively rare. Multiple uh, treatment options exist for people with uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Ibrutinib uh, was approved, I think, in 2014 for treatment of mantle cell lymphoma. And as, as Dr. Omar mentioned, at, at the time it was approved, ibrutinib was really a groundbreaking treatment. It's an oral medication. It was more effective than uh, any other treatment we had available for mantle cell lymphoma at that time. But as Dr. Omar mentioned, it can be associated with bleeding or bruising, and 5% of people might have atrial fibrillation that could be associated with ibrutinib. And so acalabrutinib is a much more specific drug and uh, in this uh, study that was presented at ASH, over 120 people with previously treated mantle cell lymphoma were able uh, were treated with acalabrutinib, and the vast majority of people responded, including a high rate of complete responses. And importantly, in this study, there were no there was only one significant bleeding event and no cases of atrial fibrillation. And so, on that basis of high efficacy and uh, remarkable tolerability the drug was approved for treatment of mantle cell lymphoma and that's important because the drug is uh, active in a lot of other lymphoid malignancies and, and uh, can be used um, potentially off-label and is being studied in all of those uh, cancers as well and so we're going to see uh, that drug moving forward at, across lymphomas in the future. The last study I thought I, I would mention and I'm sure there will be a lot of interest in this is based also a, a drug that was approved by the FDA, also a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in December, and that's a study called ZUMA-1. ZUMA-1 uh, is a study in which a, a drug called axicabtagene silolucil, or axicel, it's a, it's a CAR T-cell, which is essentially a genetically engineered immune system cell, or an engineered immune system cell that will fight against uh, cancer. In this case, the immune system cell has been engineered to fight against uh, white blood cell cancers, including diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a kind of lymphoma that we tend to cure 
uh, with standard chemotherapy the majority of the time. If we're not successful initially, it can become a little bit more challenging, and there are less standard therapies when our initial uh, treatments haven't worked as well. So in this trial, uh, uh, people with uh, previously treated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, for whom no real standard treatments existed, uh, were offered uh, treatment with this axicaptogene silolucel. And uh, in fact, the majority of people uh, responded, including uh, about 50% complete responses. And the majority of those complete responses were durable beyond a year. So a group of people that were uh, challenging to treat, many of them were appeared to have been cured by this uh, breakthrough therapy. And so based on the results of that trial, the FDA uh, granted approval uh, full approval, actually, for the uh, new CAR T-cell in people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who have received at least two prior lines of therapy. So that's those are three studies that highlight just uh, three new drug approvals in, um, in lymphomas, which is a pretty uh, gratifying year. In terms of things that I think are important to ask your doctor, Probably there are two key questions, and it's probably true of a lot of different kinds of cancer, but especially in lymphoma, one of the keys is to find out what the specific diagnosis is. Because there are so many different kinds of lymphomas, and uh, we're becoming more and more refined in how we define lymphomas, even diffuse large B-cell lymphoma now is subtyped into multiple subtypes. It's important to be really clear about what the specific histology is. And the next most important question really is what is the goal of therapy? Is the goal of therapy to eradicate the lymphoma completely? Is the goal of therapy to provide a long life with minimal um, uh, impact from the lymphoma and minimal impact from the treatments? Uh, all of those, that, that one question leads to a series of other questions that are really important in terms of identifying the best treatment option for that particular scenario. So that's it. I will uh, turn it over to the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was really outstanding and, again, very informative for our participants. And I think there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Some of the questions are coming in already, so I just want to let everybody know that, indeed, um, we will be taking questions after the next few speakers. And so be sure to have questions in mind that you want to ask. and. You, um, and our operator will give you those instructions um, when we're ready to take questions, but you can be thinking about them as, as our speakers are speaking. Our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Messa. Dr. Messa is Director, UT Health San Antonio Cancer Center, Mays Family Foundation Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine with tenure. Um, and Dr. Messa is going to be addressing updates Overview of, of, of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPN, um, MPN-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and talking with your healthcare team about your treatment options. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. It's my great pleasure today to share with you some of the updates regarding the myeloproliferative neoplasms from the American Society Hematology Meeting in Atlanta from 2017. Indeed, is a time of uh, significant progress for the MPNs. Now, across the blood diseases, 
and MPNs are no exception. This is an era where we're focusing on precision medicine, meaning that we're trying to best match up our expectations of therapies and helping them match best with the individual patients. This includes risk with the disease, how it affects you, as well as symptom burden. Now, at this year's ASH meeting, there were several key updates regarding, one, what risk factors we assess with the disease. One key study helped to demonstrate that in individuals that have had either transient ischemic attacks, which are kind of a pre-stroke or stroke, that it's very important that we start medicines to control their blood counts, and that this part of starting medicines early, such as hydroxyurea, interferon, or ruxolitinib early, is important in trying to avoid those events if they have already occurred. Second, we have learned much regarding the impact of the therapies we had. In the arena of JAK2 inhibitors, we have ruxolitinib, which is approved as an initial treatment for myelofibrosis and as a second-line treatment for patients with polycythemia vera who have failed hydroxyurea. We learned four-year follow-up of the clinical trial of ruxolitinib in polycythemia vera and saw that after four years, that therapy is still effective for the majority of people treated, that they're tolerating it well, and that we don't see any long-term additional concerns with safety by taking that medication. There are other key JAK inhibitors in development. One that was discussed at ASH includes pacritinib, a JAK2 and FLIP3 inhibitor active in people who have low platelets with myelofibrosis for reducing splenomegaly and symptoms. This drug is trying to still find its optimal dose before a potential FDA approval. Finally, there is the drug called fidratinib. It has been shown in prior clinical trials to be helpful for people with myelofibrosis who have a big spleen and symptoms. In the past, it was also reported that this drug was helpful in people that had no longer benefited from ruxolitinib. It had been on a clinical hold, which has now been lifted. Eight of 900 patients who had been treated with fidratinib had had neurologic complications. Further study by the FDA of these side effects suggested that it was safe to proceed with uh, potentially investigating the drug further, and that drug may become available in the near future on that basis. Other key studies I would highlight would be evolving information regarding the use of interferons. Our MPD research consortium showed that long-acting pegylated interferon was effective in the majority of patients with polycythemia vera or a central thrombocythemia who had previously failed hydroxyurea. Additionally, the two-year data of the long-acting ropegylated interferon, one from Austria and Taiwan, was shown to be effective uh, after two years and likely superior to hydroxyurea in, uh, in individuals uh, with a newly diagnosed polycythemia vera. Next, I would highlight that there's many new drugs in development, well over 12 that were presented at ASH. One in particular is the agent Lospatercept, which its analog, Soteracept, had been helpful in improving anemia in patients with myelofibrosis, either alone or in combination with ruxolitinib. 
Finally, I would highlight that there's a significant effort to better understand how difficult symptoms are related to MPNs, why they affect you, and in addition to medicines, what else we can do to help them. My group helped to uh, share data regarding an intervention with an online yoga module developed specifically for MPN patients that compared to a control group showed ability to improve sleep, depression, and markers of inflammation. There are other efforts like this ongoing to develop anti-inflammatory diets, meditation interventions, and even cognitive therapies to complement our current medical therapies. It's indeed a time of significant progress for new therapies with myeloproliferative neoplasms. In addition to the development of these new therapies, there's further information to help us better classify risk on the basis of how the disease is affecting you, on the basis of counts, on the basis of disease features, but also on the basis of the different molecular mutations that individuals can have with the disease. Indeed, precision medicine or individualized medicine starts with a better understanding of the molecular changes you have with the disease, but extends to include how the disease affects you in terms of disease features, what are the symptoms that you've had, your other medical problems, any uh, difficulties you've had with the disease in the past, such as prior blood clots, as well as your own personal medical choices and decisions. So I'm hopeful in continued partnership with patients and the patient's community, we will continue to make significant advances uh, in better therapies for MPNs and better be able to match the therapies we have with the individuals and how they are afflicted. And with that, I'll hand the call back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was outstanding. and. Very, very informative, and I know there'll be questions during the Q&A as well, so thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Nupur Rajay. Dr. Rajay is Director, Center for Multiple Myeloma, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Rajay is going to present an overview of multiple myeloma, multiple myeloma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rajay. Thanks so much, Carolyn. It's a real pleasure to be here on this call uh, today. As you mentioned, I will be going over um, advances that were presented at the recently concluded uh, American Society of Hematology meeting uh, this past year. But before we do that, uh, what I would like to do is just give you a, a quick overview of myeloma. I am sure most of your listeners are aware of this, but myeloma, as you all know, is a cancer of the bone marrow, and it's initiated by cells called plasma cells, these plasma cells are a type of white blood cell which is important to the immune system and their function is to protect against infections by producing proteins or antibodies. Now normally plasma cells make up less than 5% of the blood cells in the bone marrow but for reasons that are not completely understood these plasma cells can sometimes go out of, can grow out of control and these are then referred to as myeloma cells 
and when they fill up the bone marrow space, they can cause damage to the bone and over time can result in multiple different problems, such as multiple areas of the bones can be damaged, which may be one of the reasons why it is referred to as multiple myeloma. You can have other symptoms associated with myeloma, uh, wherein you have anemia, low blood counts, you have a protein in the blood which can in fact impact um, kidney function and a lot of times patients uh, may present with the bone, bony aches and pains as a consequence of the bone disease associated with myeloma. Now, all of these symptoms can obviously be corrected if the underlying disease is treated. And what we have seen, and we've been very excited over the last few years with all of the new um, medications which have been made available to our patients, we've had uh, a record number of FDA-approved drugs uh, for the treatment of multiple myeloma and really progress in this disease has been unprecedented wherein we have patients now living with multiple myeloma uh, for a very, very long time and with that um, not just living for a very long time but also living with a good quality of life for a long time. And as always, uh, you know, ASH is in a very exciting meeting for myeloma, and this year, again, was no different. Um, and um, there have been several... Um, really important studies which were presented um, at this year's American Society of Hematology uh, meeting, and I will try and go over some of these. Uh, what I mentioned to you earlier was uh, what myeloma really is and some of the symptoms associated with myeloma, and when you have those disease-defining symptoms, uh, there is no question that patients with those symptoms need to be treated. There is, however, an entity known as smoldering myeloma. Now, smoldering myeloma is an area of active research, and what smoldering myeloma really means is that you do make all the diagnostic criteria for myeloma, but most patients have really no symptoms from um, uh, uh, their disease at uh, this point. What was done at this year's ASH was a late breaker which was presented by Dr. Mateus and this was early data presented on what is referred to as the CESAR study. And the idea behind this study is if you want to cure a disease, you want to try and address it and treat it as early as possible. And because we have a precursor disease state in myeloma such as smoldering myeloma, what the investigators in the CESAR study did here was treated smoldering multiple myeloma uh, patients with combination therapy including uh, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone followed by a transplant followed by maintenance treatment. So essentially treated smoldering multiple myeloma patients as if they had active myeloma. What was noted in this trial was that early data looked at patients 
who had very nice response rates, and not just very nice response rates, but were able to see MRD negativity, that is minimal residual disease negative, in about 60% of these patients. So obviously this is an advance. I will, however, uh, stress that as of right now, treatment for smoldering multiple myeloma should only be done in the context of a clinical trial, and this is an area where typically we do not treat patients, but nonetheless, this data which was presented at uh, ASH is encouraging, and we have to wait for longer follow-up to decide whether or not one should be doing this in patients with myeloma. Now, along the lines of treatment, you know, we are quite excited about certain diagnostic platforms as well. I've mentioned MRD testing here. Now, MRD testing is a question which uh, we get asked a lot about by patients, by caregivers. And this is testing to see what kind of depth of response can a patient get. There was data presented at this year's ASH uh, meeting uh, with respect to MRD uh, testing as well. Generally, there are two ways of testing for MRD. You can either test by flow cytometry or do a genetic testing for minimal residual uh, testing. The data which was presented here suggested that if you are MRD negative, your outcomes are much better, confirming that MRD testing does have a prognostic uh, um, significance in the context of myeloma. There was also data presented on the role of transplants, and in fact, this year's ASH, we had data which was presented from our European colleagues talking about two transplants, that is two autologous transplants within a six-month time frame. And what the data here showed was that if folks had features of high-risk disease, genetically high-risk myeloma or any other high-risk features of myeloma, in a subset of these patients, two transplants was able to better achieve MRD-negative status and was able to better translate into disease control in these patients. Now, speaking about MRD, there was other data also suggesting that you didn't have to get to MRD negativity using a transplant. It didn't matter how you got to MRD negativity, and this was data which was presented by uh, colleagues. Uh, it's a collaborative effort from colleagues in France and the United States. This is a DFCI-IFM trial. MRD status was studied in this group of patients, and this group of patients is very interesting because half the patients here were transplanted, the other half were not transplanted, and what was shown by the investigators here was it didn't matter what kind of treatment you ended up getting, but if you got to MRD negative status, you did quite well whether you got the transplant or not, suggesting that there may be certain patients where we may in fact be able to avoid uh, transplantation in multiple myeloma. 
Now, you all have heard about all of the new uh, drugs which have been approved in multiple myeloma over the last uh, several years. Uh, we have the uh, immunomodulatory class of drugs. You have the proteasome inhibitors, which have now formed the backbone of treatment for myeloma. You also saw a lot of monoclonal antibodies approved a couple of years back with elotuzumab and the other monoclonal antibody called daratumumab. Well, at this year's ASH, we had data now of the use of daratumumab. Now, as of right now, daratumumab is approved in the relapse setting, that is when the disease comes back. But at this year's ASH, it was presented, the Alcyon data, Alcyon trial data was presented wherein daratumumab has been used in newly diagnosed patients. It has been combined with standard of care uh, drugs, and in this case, it was the use of bortezomib, melflan, and prednisone, and data here showed that daratumumab could in fact achieve deep and durable responses when compared with the VMP arm alone, suggesting that we probably will be using these monoclonal antibodies early on. Um, uh, this daratumumab, there was more data presented. All of you know that when daratumumab is given, it's given as an IV infusion and given over six to eight hours, but now we have a newer formulation of daratumumab. This can, in fact, be given subcutaneously and typically takes half an hour. So we are also looking at using these drugs in a more convenient fashion and a more patient-friendly fashion. So daratumumab given subcutaneously was compared to the intravenous form, and it worked just as well, suggesting that in the future we might be able to do this for our patients so that your quality of life could be much better as opposed to getting the six- and eight-hour infusions. There are other CD38 monoclonal antibodies also, and there was data which was presented on a different CD38 antibody. This drug is called esotuximab, and this was combined with some of the other drugs like pomalidomide as well as carfilzomib, which all of you are familiar with in multiple myeloma. But I think the most exciting piece of data that we've seen is targeting a very specific protein in uh, patients with myeloma. And this protein is called BCMA. It also stands for the B-cell maturation antigen. Now, this is a protein which is expressed and present on pretty much all multiple myeloma cells. So if you have myeloma and you have myeloma cells in the bone marrow, these myeloma cells should, in fact, express this protein known as BCMA. There's uh, several approaches of trying to target this BCMA, and for the first time at this year's ASH, we saw the real clinical data trying to target this BCMA um, uh, protein. The first trial that I'm going to mention is going to be uh, is called the DREAM trial. Uh, the DREAM trial was uh, a conjugated monoclonal antibody, so an antibody quite similar to daratumumab, but in this case also has a warhead. A warhead is a 
a toxin which is attached to the antibody which can then go kill the actual tumor cell. Now this antibody has been created to recognize this protein called BCMA and this was used in patients, about 35 patients were treated uh, with this uh, BCMA directed conjugated antibody and what was seen in these patients was a very high uh, response rate of about 60% and these responses were quite durable with patients staying in remission for a protracted period of time. There was a little bit of toxicity noted with this conjugated antibody and most of the toxicity was manageable but there was significant eye toxicity which we are keeping uh, being watchful about. I think another very interesting avenue which has been mentioned by some of my previous speakers as well um, is the area of cellular therapy. And we had several CAR T-cell um, approaches which were presented in the context of multiple myeloma. Um, both of these um, CAR T-cell or cellular uh, therapy approaches were using BCMA, so the same target antigen, wherein the T cells of a patient are engineered uh, to recognize and then kill uh, myeloma cells which are expressing BCMA. The PEN uh, data was presented as well as the BB2121 data from Bluebird was presented. Both data sets showed uh, that uh, these kinds of cellular approaches can, in fact, produce pretty high response rates. The Bluebird trial showed a response rate of close to 90%. And importantly, in these patients who had been very refractory to all kinds of previous treatments, they had ended up uh, um, uh, actually achieving a complete response to the extent of achieving minimal residual disease negative status as well. And they had ongoing responses for beyond a year in this very heavily pretreated group. So very exciting uh, uh, treatment strategy for myeloma patients. Obviously, one has to uh, appreciate and understand that these do not come without toxicities. Uh, having said that, the toxicity with this CAR T-cell approach was fairly well managed. The ones which we look out for in general are neurotoxicity, so some level of CNS toxicity, and the other important uh, toxicity with this is known as cytokine release syndrome, which is also seen in our patients, but was easy, easily managed in most of our patients. So along with all of this, we also have um, another monoclonal antibody which has been approved uh, in the treatment of myeloma, and this one is in fact uh, for uh, the associated bone disease. This is called denosumab, and um, this was based on a very large randomized trial which has now been published of close to 1,700 patients comparing denosumab to what is now the standard of care, which is zoledronic acid. So with the approval of this denosumab, we have an additional um, 
option of treatment for folks with bone disease. The nice thing about this denosumab is it's given subcutaneously, so you do not need an IV infusion, and it is actually quite safe for people with renal dysfunction, and that can be a problem for patients with uh, multiple myeloma. So these were just some of the highlights which were uh, presented at this year's ASH because of all of the translational and clinical developments which are going on in the uh, area of myeloma. I would encourage all of you to reach out to your healthcare providers to try and figure out if you do have a clinical trial which is accessible and which is appropriate for you uh, because uh, a lot of the advances we've made in myeloma are because of your participation in um, uh, clinical trials. Finally, I do want to highlight the importance of your caregivers and want you all to know that you're not alone with this disease. Your caregiver team, uh, I view, is your team of doctors, your nurses, your social workers, and most importantly, your family and friends, and involving them and using them uh, to help you support, through, uh, support you through this journey with myeloma will make it a lot easier. I will stop here and hand it over back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roger. That was really outstanding and, and just a lot of information for everybody to actually absorb and to um, actually uh, think about implementing in terms of their care and going back to their healthcare team. So thank you so much. Um, we're going to take questions in just a minute. I just want to say a few words about um, the services that you can access from Cancer Care and then we will take questions. So um, stay tuned. Um, I basically, um, Cancer Care is a, a national organization that provides oncology social work services to people living with cancer. There's no cost for the services. And for many of you, um, participate in both our telephone support groups, our over 120 online support groups, all facilitated by oncology social workers. We also do offer practical and financial assistance and counseling services, both over the telephone and online so that um, those are services that you can just access by calling our 800 number or visiting our website. I and mean, all that information will be sent to you after the program, so you'll have all of that at your fingertips um, you know, with where you should call, but it's on all the materials you've been getting from us. Um, in addition, we do have programs like this, and we have um, also more education workshops. We have uh, various publications and um, fact sheets and information like that. But I think uh, to piggyback on what Dr. Roger has said, you do have this host of um, your, your, of course, you have your treating hematologists, oncologists who are treating you, and then, of course, there are all the other the oncology nurses, the oncology social workers, the patient navigators, all of those people are there to help you with some of the practical issues or concerns that you may have. And so you do want to let your healthcare team know about any concerns that you have so they can refer you to the appropriate people and resources. There are so many resources out there, um, as you can see from all of the collaborating organizations that we work with um, on these programs, all of whom have their own particular services that they can offer you as well. So with that being said, we now have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board. And... Um, I will take as many of your questions as possible, and if we don't have time for your question, I will actually let you know how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. So, Crystal. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. 
And our first question comes from Ron R. Your line is open. Hi. Um, thanks very much for the conference. It was very informative. Quick question about uh, the status of CAR-T therapy. I know there's many types of uh, NHL. Um, for follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, where does it stand right now for CAR-T therapy? Is it is still in clinical trials or has, it, has approval just come? If it is still in trials, is it uh, any speculation as to how soon they may wrap up with results? Well, thank you, Ron, for that question. And Dr. Martin, would you want to address that question in a general way? And um, we hope that will be helpful to you, Martin. Sure. So it, right now, CAR T cells uh, for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma are approved only for previously treated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. There have been clinical trials that have shown that they have activity in follicular lymphoma. The pathway to approval in follicular lymphoma is a little bit more challenging in that we have many other treatments that are really effective and really well tolerated. That said, there are some uh, ongoing clinical trials right now looking at CAR T cells in high-risk uh, follicular lymphoma scenarios, specifically people that experience uh, early uh, relapse uh, after initial chemotherapy or people who um, have received multiple prior lines of therapy and are uh, refractory to rituximab and uh, chemotherapy. So there may be a pathway to approval. I think it's uh, not necessarily as straightforward as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma where there might be uh, fewer treatment options. Excellent. Thank you. And um, thank you, Ron, for that question. And Dr. Martin for that wonderful answer. A great first question. And um, um, let's see if we have another telephone question, or else I'll take one of the online questions. Um, oh, we do have another telephone question. Um, Crystal, yes. Thank you. And our next question comes from Sue O. Your line is open. Hi. Um, it doesn't matter who answers this question because you, you all. Um, I have I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and um, I I was diagnosed in 2006. I didn't need chemo until 2013, and then um, after three rounds of chemo, Dr. I had to stop it because my body wasn't tolerating the rituxan or the bendamustine. So what I'm I've been in remission. It'll be five years in May, and I'm. I guess what I'm worried about or concerned about is if, if I've gone this long without um, relapsing and it's a chronic disease, does this mean that there's a really good chance it will never come back? Well, thank you for that question, Sue. I, I'm going to ask Dr. Moore if you could address this in a general way. And, um, you know, we're um, certainly delighted to hear that of your remission, and, but I, Dr. Morrow, if you could just address it in a general way or even questions that Sue could take back to your healthcare team, that you, I'll leave it in your, in, your, in your good hands, Dr. Morrow. Sure, and I, I want to also maybe leave a moment for Dr. Martin, who I know probably has experience with patients with CLL. Yes, first, I'm so glad to hear you're, you're responding. I think this is a question that many patients might have. How am I doing if um, I, my treatment wasn't exactly easy and wasn't well tolerated, but yet I've been told I'm in good remission, and maybe it's a chronic disease? I think there's increasingly good ways to um, understand how, how good a remission is with CLL by more detailed tests, um, which I'm sure Dr. Rai, who I know is an expert in CLL, can take care of. And um, uh, this raises the important topic of making sure you stay in good touch with your healthcare team to alert them to any signs or symptoms, to have regular follow-up. CLL relapse is detected by symptoms, swollen glands, 
um, and even simple symptoms like fatigue or uh, bleeding, bruising, and of course blood tests. So, so um, I, I think the program of treatment you got was a good one. It's it's a standard treatment, so it's fantastic. And I hope the earlier information about all the um, new drugs and things on the in the pipeline for patients who don't have uh, uh, lasting remission with their first treatment um, will reassure you that there are uh, safe and even uh, lower toxicity profile drugs in development for CLL if it returns. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Martin, did you want to add to this as well? Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I would, I would just, uh, you know, reinforce that last part, which is that we have so many new treatments that are already approved for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And, um, you know, there's, there's naturally some anxiety about whether it's coming back, what's going to happen when it comes back. But I want uh, to leave everybody rest assured that there are treatments that are available that are unlike anything we've used historically. And so uh, as physicians, I think there's a lot less anxiety um, about that event, although I understand, obviously, it's a little bit different if you're experiencing it, but I, you know, I, lots to be encouraged about. Excellent. Thank you. And um, that was a great question, Sue, and we do hope you'll go back to your treating healthcare team with this information as well. And the next question is from our, one of our online participants. It's for Dr. Rajay. And it's really a, a, an interesting question. Should certain, treat, should certain treatments take priority for elderly with multiple myeloma? And just kind of, uh, you could address this in a general way, um, and indeed. Sure, Carolyn. That, that, that's a great question. You know, we're, we're, <laughs> the definition of elderly keeps changing, I think. So, um, you know, myeloma tends to happen in people in their 60s and 70s. And the one thing we do appreciate is um, in that age bracket, there are other um, associated um, uh, comorbidities like, you know, heart disease, diabetes, and things like that. Um, the good news, though, is with the treatments we have today, um, a lot of these are generally well-tolerated. And the other piece, which is uh, very critical, is to be able to dose modify. Um, and I think a lot of the clinical trials have taught us how to dose modify um, uh, some of the drugs that we have, which are FDA approved, uh, use regimens which are more um, user-friendly to patient uh, populations. And in general, once you tweak the doses and once you change uh, whether you use weekly bortezomib or you go down on your lenalidomide dose, uh, decrease the dose of pomalidomide, most times you can have patients tolerate this. So I think uh, one has to look at the balance of efficacy of these drugs and how to well tolerated they are. And the key to doing well uh, with myeloma is to be able to stay on these drugs for um, uh, you know, a certain length of time. So uh, I think dose modifications is something we are quite familiar with, and that's something you should certainly discuss with your healthcare team. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have another telephone question, uh, Crystal. Is that correct? Yes. Our next question comes from Marcia R. Your line is open. Yes, I was wondering if there was any discussion at all of any new treatments or uh, drugs that might be out there for uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, indolent, small B-cell follicular type. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that question. Uh, Dr. Martin, could you address that question? 
Sure. So in the past year, there was in fact one drug that was approved for follicular lymphoma. The drug is called Copanlifib. It's an intravenous drug from the class of medications called PI3 kinase inhibitors. There's already one uh, oral PA3 kinase inhibitor approved for follicular lymphoma, namely idelalisib. Uh, so that class of medications is clearly active in follicular lymphoma, and there are several other drugs that are in development. There are a whole bunch of other drugs that are all uh, going through clinical trials in follicular lymphoma. As previously mentioned, there are CAR T cells. Um, boy, I mean, you can, you don't have to go very far to find a, a clinical trial with a novel agent uh, in follicular lymphoma. So there are lots of uh, uh, drugs that I expect will be approved in the in the coming years. But copanlisib is the one that was most recently approved. I think there were seven approvals by the FDA for non Hodgkin's lymphoma last year. Copanlisib was one that was for follicular lymphoma specifically. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Um, and our next question, Crystal. And our next question comes from Susan R. Your line is open. Please check that you're not on mute. Oh, hello. This is Susan uh, R. Um, I had a question about the spelling of the what Dr. Martin mentioned, the drug that starts with the, it was the trial that was in the December uh, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, what the name of the, the drug was that had to do with the card cells. Okay, that's uh, what it's hard enough to say, harder to spell. <laughs> it's called uh, uh, they're probably the easiest way to look for it online is to just put KTE C19. Um, the, the brand name is AxiCell, that's AXI CEL. Uh, the generic name is Axicabtagene Silalucel, which is AXI CABTAGENECI. L O L E U C E L, I think. It's, I think I got it right. <laughs> Excellent. And, the, and you said the CTC C19 will work as well to get it? Is that Yeah, KTE C19, as, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, is the James Bond name, but it had a, an actual drug name. It was uh, called KTE C19. Okay. Excellent. Well, this is a. I have to say we have many more questions. I want to thank our speakers. This has been an extraordinary call. I also want to thank our participants who have been really asking such really great questions. And it's true we could go on for a good part of the afternoon, but we did say that we would conclude the call at a certain time. And I know you all have other things to do this afternoon. But I do want to let you know that there are ways to get your other questions answered because I know there are other questions in queue right now. So one thing I do want to mention, of course, is your healthcare team. We don't ever want to sidestep them. They are definitely, they know you the best. They're there for you. But I know some of you like to get information other places. And so um, you will be getting a listing from us of all the collaborating organizations, many of which are, are, are specific types of blood cancers organizations that have um, call centers that you can contact. And certainly one that comes to mind for many of the cancers on the call today is Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, and um, they also do handle questions on multiple myeloma as well. So that's a wonderful resource for all of you. Um, and then, of course, there is the um, National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number of 1-800-422-6237. And they also have, um, they all have websites. And, um, but their website is interesting because it has a live chat feature. It's www.cancer.gov. 
and you can post your question, and one of the information specialists will then address your question and help you to get all the information and resources about it. Um, and so that's a wonderful resource for you. And we will also send you information about access to clinical trials information as well. So most importantly, there are resources out there for you to get your questions answered, and that's really important, including your healthcare team. Uh, I also, some of you also may wish to access services from Cancer Care um, or any one of our nonprofit organizations that we've listed in our in our uh, listing of resources for you. And for Cancer Care, if you wish to talk to one of our social workers or access practical or financial assistance or copay assistance, you can simply call us um, at Cancer Care or you can visit our website. And um, most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of this enormous community of support, and we're all here to help you. And um, we are simply a phone call away or a mouse click away in terms of your computer or your, uh, you have a mobile device that you may have to contact all of us. So I want to thank you for your participation today, your great enthusiasm, and um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.